All right, let's get started. Here's what we're doing. Last week, we had a discussion about Mormonism. And tonight, we have this great opportunity to actually dialogue with a Mormon theologian. And this is going to be a great thing. I'm very excited about this tonight. Richard Livingston is here tonight. Let me introduce him to you briefly. Richard got his bachelor's in Middle Eastern Studies from Brigham Young University. He went on to the University of Chicago, very prestigious school, where he got his master's in theology, and he's currently at the Claremont Graduate University getting his PhD in the philosophy of religion. Yes, Richard is Mormon. He's a Mormon theologian, and he's here to talk to us tonight. So I just want to dive right in. Come on up. Why don't you just come on up here? Thank you. The first question that came to mind right off the bat, did you do a mission? As, I did. Did you? Tell yeah. us a little bit about your mission. When you did it, did you do it after your well, just, time at BYU? Yeah, just in sort of the spirit of disclosure, I was raised in about as conservative, conventional Mormon home world that you can think of. I'm from Utah, and if you think Salt Lake City is the capital, you actually would be mistaken. About 40 miles south, Provo, where BYU is, um, is what I consider sort of because there's more people there per capita. It's about 80 to 90 percent of everybody who lives there. Salt Lake's about 40, something like that. So anyway, I was ra raised in a very conventional home, and I did I, I went through the normal routine, and I went on a mission to New England, uh, New Hampshire, Manchester. It was Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, uh, a little bit of New York, way up north, and a little bit of Massachusetts. So that was a two-year mission? Two years, yeah. Two years? That was after your time at BYU? No, that was before, actually. Yeah. That was before I had any clue what I wanted to do with anything. So I graduated high school, and I worked and saved money for about a year and a half before I went out and at 19. We've been doing some studies about Mormonism, did a little bit last week, and one of the things that we were trying to characterize was some of the differences yeah. that, that exist. And, but one of the places we started looking last week was understanding the nature of God, understanding the nature of Christ, those kinds of things. So we were kind of starting to focus there, and I was hoping you could kind of begin there. One of the things that we hear often is that Mormons characterize God in a different way than I think we're used to, at least. Uh, he's described as once being a man, having a physical body, uh, some of those things. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how that exists in Mormon theology and maybe some of the differences from maybe the belief system that we have. Yeah, it was interesting because when I got your questions, when I, question number one is, is, is about this, and I'm like, well, okay, let's just jump right into the deep end and <laughs> let's, not, let's not mess around and just go right, right, right into it. But... Um, I think maybe it would be helpful to tell you where it comes from, where the idea originates, uh, which I'm sure you discussed this last week. If you didn't, then your discussion leader didn't do a very good job. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that, is, that is Joseph Smith's first significant divine encounter. Uh, it's called the first vision yeah, within the tradition. And this was him at age 14 and 15 wrestling with the environment that he found himself in, which was a lot of different religions competing for uh, individuals. And so he, did, he struggled. He didn't know what to do. I mean, he's fairly young, so it's interesting just that his, his age, 12, 13, 14 years old, he actually cares deeply about this stuff. But what led to the moment was this question. And he, he, he writes, and in most of the historical accounts of this, he does write th or note that what led him to this prayer was James 1, 5. This, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. 
And so he decides to do that, goes into a grove of trees near his home in New York and has this experience where God and Jesus appear to him in person, physically. And the wrestle that this creates or the tension or the animosity or the controversy that this creates between Mormonism and traditional Christianity is that this is just an image that has been long given up. The idea of an embodied God, it was tossed, I say tossed around, that's kind of a loose term, but it was something that was speculated about in the early centuries after, um, after Jesus, uh, after his death, but it's something that uh, certainly didn't gain wide circulation or belief. So it pretty much, the, the, the speculation more or less died out through the centuries, and it's something that has been viewed as absolutely heretical. And so for somebody to come forward and then start talking about it, an embodied God, not just an embodied Jesus, um, has all sorts of exciting things for Mormons and problems for people who don't believe. And the one thing that I've learned, especially coming out of BYU and the University of Chicago and then here at Claremont, is how just radically foreign and absurd this sounds. So I get that if some of you are sitting there saying to yourselves and hearing about Mormonism, about any of its ideas, I absolutely get and understand how the sort of wackiness, the strangeness of uh, the central, some of the central ideas of Mormonism. But there's, there's two factors I want to focus on. One is it seems like there's an evolution in that first vision account. There is. That first handwritten versions, it seems like Joseph Smith just doesn't even describe two different people. And as it evolves over the years, in fact, after his death, it appears that it's only then that God the Father is yeah. visible in the story. This was one of those things that I wanted to... I'm not a historian, so uh, I want to be very clear about that up front. So I'm not... I don't have a strong background in the historical details of, of some of these things. But one thing I'm pretty sure, for example, that the statement that when, when, uh, when God appears to Joseph Smith and says, this is my beloved son, hear him, that was there all the way from the late 1830s. The first account, the first time he had this written down was in 1832. And what's interesting is that the story today, this is the foundational narrative that shapes and brings all of you here today. Um, Mormons absolutely have a belief in that narrative, but what formed the initial forming of the Mormon community was this narrative. And it's one of those things that's a, a sort of pillar of faith for Mormons. Every bit as much as Jesus is the Messiah for Mormons, and they absolutely affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Joseph Smith was his prophet absolute pillar of his faith. And so we treat that foundational narrative um, in, in, in a sacred way, in the same way that Christianity treats the narrative of Jesus. And I mention that because in the first time he recounts it, that happened in 1820. Well, there's some debate about the year in which it happened because of the, uh, the records that weren't kept. But it happened about 1820. Um, the standard, uh, the official account has it happening in 1820. But the first time that he recounts it is 1832. And when he recounts it, it's much more like a personal experience, what it did for me. He was talking about it in terms of its significance to him when he has this moment. And in that first account, he doesn't mention that he sees two people. So this is obviously problematic. 
How is it that he could have had this grand experience, this earth, his earth or world-shaking experience was become so significant? How is it that he doesn't mention that? I don't necessarily have a good answer other, other than to say that it looks to me when I read that first account, it's not very long, that he's more concerned about why he went there. One of the re- he, he went there really for uh, two primary reasons, a concern for himself and a uh, sort of self-discovery and discovery, which religion should I go to? Should I be a part of? Which, where, where is the truth is what he's concerned with. And part of the response was that you've been forgiven of your sins. And that becomes a focal point in that first one, at least as I read it, that uh, the forgiveness, the statement by God that he's been forgiven of his sins becomes a focal point. And he seems to uh, talk more about that than some of the other details that come out later. There, there ends up in total eight or nine different accounts, none of which are identical. So again, the, the apparent inconsistencies uh, are wide open for the critics of the church, and it still goes on to this day. Why is it? How is it? They're, they're, they're so very different. And I guess one response, and I hesitate giving very many of these tonight because I have no interest in convincing anybody about the truth or the correctness of Mormonism, my purpose in being here tonight really is, I hope, to build some bridges of understanding so that you might walk away with, oh, okay, I get that, even though I totally disagree with it. Um, but with respect to the first vision, the comparison that a lot of people make, and I think it's fair, is Paul's experience, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. All three of those vary slightly in the book of Acts, and then in the other books, they have their own subtle variations. And I at least would want to draw a, a, a sort of similar parallel that it doesn't end up exactly the same in each telling, in each account. And is it the case that some information is left out of one and then added in another? Um, does that automatically means that we should be suspicious of its correctness? And probably most of you in this room wouldn't be in, in doubting uh, the narratives of Paul and in the same way, if a Mormon's going to read those narratives of Joseph Smith, they'll treat that in a similar way, that he's talking to different people and there's a different audience, and he has different concern. He's younger at one point, older at another, has gone through a lot of different life experience. So his audience is different in each case. Let's go back to that first vision and the idea that if there is the embodiment of God, which seems to be one of the central doctrines that we sometimes struggle with, it seems there are a number of passages in the Book of Mormon that actually state that God is a spirit. It mm-hmm. seems like the doctrines about God being a man in body and then becoming God yeah. um, are in later scriptures, like Doctrine and Covenants, other, other scriptures that come later, and actually probably the prophetic teachings of the church and the prophets. Um, how does that progression happen? I mean, if it's true that the Book of Mormon doesn't make those statements and actually states the opposite in a number yeah. of places, yeah. How do you treat that, and how does Mormon theology treat that? Is that continuing revelation? Is it more accurate revelation? What happens there? Well, one of the really intriguing things to me as I've studied this is that if, I've said this to a lot of friends, if all we had was the Book of Mormon, we would look a lot more Christian than I think a lot of Christians look. And I say that because when you come across so many of the passages that describe um, the Trinity, for example. The Book of Mormon, depending on the passages you're reading, can either look very, very Binitarian or very Trinitarian. 
Either way, you don't have, especially because the Book of Mormon, it's published before the church even is formally organized. The church was formally organized in the spring of 1830. But it, even before the church was formally organized, the book comes off the press. So this, this book becomes this really key, unifying, sacred text. But within the pages of that book, it's fascinating what's not there. And that is this description of two separate beings, God and Jesus. And it, it looks and feels, in a lot of ways, more like conventional Christianity. And we don't hear much about ex explicit statements about the separate and distinct personhood of God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit until the late 1830s. So we're five, six, seven, eight years after the Book of Mormon is published. And so how to look at it? Well, you can look at it a couple of different ways, and I, don't want to, I have no interest in settling the matter. One view is that Joseph just developed theologically, that whatever happened in that theophany, he didn't fully understand it, and that through the years he sort of grew in understanding, and that he became more and more uh, aware of this idea. Because by the time, shortly before his death, 14 years later, so this is a, this is a really short condensed time span. You have this significant moment in 1820. You have the church formed 10 years later. And then 14 years later is his martyrdom. And shortly before his death, you have him saying, I've always said, there's never been a time when I haven't said that they are three separate and distinct beings. And I read statements like that and scratch my head and say, okay, but I don't see that. So I don't mind being a little critical myself on some of these issues. I, I hope that, that comes out because I think there are good, very good reasons to question some of these things. So I'm sympathetic to the criticisms is what I'm saying. So I don't see it always being said. So one view is he sort of developed, he sort of learned. The other is, well, maybe he felt like he couldn't disclose for whatever reason. Maybe he felt compelled uh, for some reason he didn't write down that he couldn't write it, he couldn't say anything about it, and later felt more comfortable or able for whatever reason. Um, there may be any number of reasons, but it looks to me that the doctrine of God, if you take the Book of Mormon by itself, it absolutely does look different than the doctrine of God that shows up in different places, later revelations to Joseph Smith and later uh, statements by leaders of the LDS Church. But Joseph Smith didn't write the Book of Mormon, right? It's a translation of an ancient... Yeah. book, right? Yeah. So I, the reason I, I press on that is because there's this idea of development of theology that you've brought up, but it's not really that he's maturing and understanding. A, let me scratch that. I'm not saying he's not maturing. What I'm saying yeah. is the place where a lot of people look and, and, and find the criticism is that this book, which he translated, mm -hmm. so it's not that he wrote it and discovered theology, but he's actually translating a book, contains certain doctrines that are not found in today's Mormon theology. I mean, just a couple of them, like the three levels of heaven, the, the idea that you mentioned already, it seems very Trinitarian in the mm -hmm, Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. uh, no it's more mention. clear, honestly, it really is. There are certain passages that are really more clear on the Trinity yeah. than anywhere I've seen in the Bible. Prohibition of polygamy, a prohibition mm -hmm. of certain acts that are now practiced. Yeah. In fairness, the reason I'm focusing on those is because a lot of people make a big deal when they see a contradiction yeah. between one part of scripture, the Book of Mormon, yeah. and later scripture of the church, or later yeah. revelation. And I, so I'm not looking really at just his development theologically. I'm trying to say, is there some sort of way that the church 
formulates a response to how does that theology change in scriptures that are all meant to be apparently inspired holy scriptures for the church, but that have contradictions against one another. Yeah. Let me, <laughs> I have two responses. I, I want to give you my personal feeling about what's going on with the Book of Mormon and why it looks slightly different. And then two, this issue of contradictions and potential contradictions. Um, First, my personal view on the Book of Mormon. If we take it for what it is, or assume that the text is what it claims itself to be, okay, for the sake of discussion, if it is an ancient text, if it is a record of a group of people who left Jerusalem in 600 BC, came over, landed somewhere in the Americas, we really don't know where, but most people assume Central America, a society develops and we have roughly a thousand year history of that society, um, of that group of people down there in Central America somewhere. Again, this is just the general scholarly assumption at this point. If we take that as the basis, and um, again, for the sake of discussion, assume it is what it says it is, I see no problem in saying, well, here is the understanding of this group of people. So if it really is a translation of an ancient text, it's going to represent a totally different, a radically different time, place, understanding, and so my own feeling is, because I don't see the three heavens, for example, in the Book of Mormon anywhere. And so my own, and, and as I read it, it's very explicit on its distinction, heaven and hell. There you go. Now, there is an, it, it gets fairly explicit about a, a place in between heaven and hell, the final heaven and the final hell. There's this sort of, what in Catholicism is purgatory, or the old term was limbo, or, or whatever. But... Um, there is this sort of in-between place that the Book of Mormon describes, but there's no three levels, for example. And my sense is that it wasn't taught then, if it is what it claims to be. Um, I, I mean, I believe it. I'm a committed practicing member still. Um, and so my sense is that this is a group of people who were taught certain things at a certain time, and they just didn't know this. It was not taught at that particular time. This doesn't necessarily contradict what comes later and maybe so so to speak about contradictions um let me make the best comparison i can make to make this clear is there will at least be some of you in this room that feel that the bible presents a very unified coherent consistent view of god um, that may not be all of you in this room but i'm guessing there's going to be one or two or three or more of you that look at the the biblical text that way it doesn't take very long into biblical studies, whether it's the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament. Um, and whether you're dealing with just the New Testament itself and the synoptic problem, you look at the synoptics and the portrait that's painted there, the, the Gospel of John and the portrait of Jesus that's painted there, and Paul and the portraits that he paints. And he, comes, he looks different in different places. I don't see it, for me, I don't see absolute harmony and unity and coherence running from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 um, personally. I think you have different people with different ideas about God. And for me, I sort of expect there to be disagreements in understanding narratives that don't quite square with one another. The numbers end up different in different places, whether you're talking about Jesus at the tomb, and there's two angels at one point, and one angel at another point. Um, discrepancies just pop up. I don't really see that myself. But I can tell you the vast majority of members of the LDS Church and the leadership 
see Genesis 1 to the end of the Book of Revelation, the beginning of the Book of Mormon to the end of the Book of Mormon, the beginning of the Doctrine and Covenants to the end of the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Prices, four texts that are absolutely unified with one another. And whatever's going on and whatever apparent contradictions there might be, they're just purely apparent. And they, so how does the church deal with it? The, the way that the church deals with it is the way that a lot of Christian communities deal with this question when biblical scholars point to them and say, help me understand this. And, the, and they will find some way to reconcile that and say that it still can be, and this still doesn't create a significant crisis of our faith just because there happened to, it appears that Isaiah and Jeremiah had a different conception of God or John the Revelator had a different idea. So they will treat it in a similar way. There seems to be some, you, you were talking just briefly about if the Book of Mormon is what it purports to be. Yeah, right? and, yeah. and that's, there's a lot of other people that look at it and think, it just seems to be a lot of things that would cause someone to doubt that this could be what it is. One yeah, of them, yeah. the number of quotations, for example, that seem to be lifted from the King James yeah. Bible, kind of word for word, a much later text, yeah. uh, including places where the translations were lifted incorrectly the same way, mm -hmm. technical mm -hmm. terms misconstrued and translated the same way. Seemingly, the language is trying to emulate a certain style. Yeah, it looks um, it looks vaguely like King James, but then it doesn't. Yeah, it's it just has this strange sort of verbiage. Yeah. And then, of course, we have at a later point Joseph Smith doing his own kind of revised version of the King mm -hmm. James itself to kind of match some of the things in the Book of Mormon. Any trouble there at all? Is that just something that, well, that maybe Christians focus on too much in the traditional sense and? Really, it's, it's kind of a, something that's been blown out of proportion. Well, there's two issues going on. One is, what in the world does, it, does translation come to for Joseph Smith? Because this, this looks and seems strange. Um, and the second issue is this idea of adding and elaborating and changing sort of what feels like it's ad hoc, at will. Oh, well, I don't like this, so I'll just change it. That's, that's the way that I think the suspicious person would look at it, and the, anyone with a critical eye would look at it. So with respect to the first, this idea of translation, let me just paint the picture the way it's not even painted within Mormon discourse yet. Within Mormon discourse, the picture is something like this. Joseph Smith, at age 17, was visited by an angel, the last one who... Uh, wrote in the record that was kept, these ancient group of people. He comes back in a physical, resurrected, embodied form and informs him where these plates or records are. He comes, this is a, age uh, 17, and Joseph sees where they're at, goes the next day, and he actually has this, this experience. He writes that he has this experience three times in the middle of the night after, after uh, the angel repeats the same thing and maybe adds a little each time. And then at the end of the third one, uh, here's the rooster, you know. It's morning time, time to get up. So he gets up and he's, um, he's, he's going out uh, to go see, you know, these plates. And so he goes and he finds them. And is, this is where the story gets a little murky as to exactly what goes on each time that he visits. But he's not allowed, the angel shows up at the, at, at the hill where the plates are and doesn't allow him to have the plates the first time. And then uh, that process goes on for four years. He, has to, he goes back to that hill once a year for four years. Finally, when he gets these plates, 
he starts slowly to work on this translation. And this translation, again, the picture that's painted traditionally in Mormon discourse is that he sort of has them in front of them. He's familiar with the language they're written in, which is called Reformed Egyptian. It's a sort of a combination of, or it, we, we don't know exactly what it is, but it, conceptually it's sort of a combination between Hebrew and Egyptian, and they, it, it's combined to shorten it up, tighten it up, um, so that you don't need as many characters to say, uh, to say as much as you would. Because if, you, if, you, if it were Hebrew, yeah, these things would have to be huge. Huge. But they're described as like six inches by nine inches, and then I think about seven or eight inches tall, these thin metal plates. And it's a pretty thick book. I mean, I was, yeah. I was one of the trying to read through most of the Book of Mormon, and I think at least the one I have, I mean, it gets up to page 600 or so, or, you know. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of plates, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's a yeah, lot of gold, exactly. isn't it, to, yeah. to be able to write a book yeah. of this size? Yeah. But, and so there's this idea that he learned the language like the way I learned Hebrew, as it was my minor as an undergrad, and then I wrestled with some texts a little bit in the way that some of you maybe have learned Hebrew or Greek, and you wrestle with the original biblical text and try to do your best at the translation. But that's that image we have that it's, the plates are there, and he kind of knows the language, and then he's got a scribe on the other side of a table writing for him while, while he's translating. But then the story starts to change because you add in these divine instruments that he uses to translate. One is what's called a Urim and Thummim, and a breastplate. The report is that it, along with the plates, he finds this, I can only picture because I really don't know, a metallic breastplate, like a, sheet, like a suit of armor breastplate type thing. And then what was called a Urim and Thummim, which again, we don't have any helpful artistic renderings of this. It's kind of like glasses with crystals, these sort of triangular pyramids, small pyramid-shaped crystals that he would use to sort of peer into and see. They were kind of seer stones. This is one divine instrument that was used. And the Urim and Thummim is viewed by most members of the church as the most common way, however this happened. He sort of puts this stuff on and then starts to work through translation. And most people leave it at that. I don't know how. I don't know what happened. But something happened, right? Well, in actuality, what took place for most of the Book of Mormon is he has this brown, this round, small round egg-shaped stone called a seer stone, peep stone. He puts it into the bottom of a hat and he stares into this hat at the stone. He buries his head in a hat and the plates are most of the time either not on the same table, they're over somewhere else, but they're not necessarily very often right in front of him. The question then becomes, what is going on here with translation? Because if translation from an ancient language into a modern language, for me is, or for you is, we all, if anybody who's learned a foreign language understands what translation, what is going on with a head and a hat looking at a stone? And how unbelievably, I'm using a nice word, weird, is this? right? I mean, this is just odd sounding. The story of the head and the hat is not something that's been, it's not the common story that's told in the church. It's going, it's slowly seeping in, in part, I think it's because of this strangeness. But what is translation? Something similar is going on with the, um, some later texts that he translates. And the words sort of, I guess, uh, what goes on is the words sort of appear in this seer stone. 
And he dictates them, and his scribe writes them down. Why he needs the plates, don't ask me. I, I don't know. Why would you need the plates if that's what you're doing? I'm not sure. Whether you're talking about the Book of Mormon or the Joseph Smith, in quotes, translation of the Bible. No, he didn't know Hebrew and Greek, and he wasn't restoring, at least to the best that I can tell, the oldest manuscripts we've got. Joseph Smith is not restoring what is missing in the King James, and we have it now in our uh, oldest uh, Hebrew Bible manuscripts or our oldest Septuagint, whatever the case may be. Um, He's not restoring what's missing. He's making what for him are inspired revisions to the biblical text. The most extensive were the book of Genesis. And then he has minor, uh, minor meaning shorter throughout the Old and New Testaments. Well, David Whitmer was one of the three witnesses that signed the affidavit at the beginning of the book of Mormon and having yeah. witnessed the translation. And he very much supports that view of he looked into his hat and saw mm-hmm. the seer stone. That's, I think, one of the reasons it becomes more troubling sometimes to find uh, whole mistranslations or whole sections lifted from the King James Bible. Yeah. Because if he's really peering into a hat and seeing pages appear and words appear as the testimony of David Whitmer was that that's how Joseph Smith explained it to him, that to find other pages just kind of dropped in Mm -hmm. seems inconsistent even with the story of using the seer stone in the hat to do that. And that... I think that's why there's been so much criticism in that area. It just well, the, the the interesting. I'm I'm not sure. I I have mixed feelings on this because the, as the story goes, they took with them the text. They had the text all the way up, or at least there's the sense in the Book of Mormon. Biblical scholars are just going to scream about this. Are you kidding me? Biblical scholarship is clear on this. These texts didn't show up till these later dates. But at least according to the story in the Book of Mormon, by 600 BC, they took with them a set of plates from Jerusalem that had all of their sacred texts up to that point. The creation narrative, it has apparently the Book of Isaiah on it. Um, they all go with them at 600 B.C. Again, this is deeply problematic for biblical scholarship, but just in terms of what the text itself purports to do, they have all of those texts up to that point. Um, And then how the translation works out, uh, like I said, I have mixed feelings on it, why, whether or not uh, it should be problematic as to there being quotes. I mean, do I expect it to be just like the King James Version? Should it be exactly the same thing? Should it be, uh, should I expect to see some variations in what he's doing with this strange process of translation? If he comes across a section where a prophet quotes Isaiah, um, should I expect him to go get his King James off the shelf and then start just quoting verbatim the verse off the shelf? I suppose you you can say, well, if someone is comfortable with the idea of this strange, divine disclosure taking place if they can if they can get past that and they actually believe in that i'm not sure it would be that troublesome to think that there might be subtle variations in a text that came uh from a completely different time and place i've read a number of mormon responses and mormon theologians talking about that point and it seems that in the 1820s the King James Version is widely accepted, right? It's the I think it's much more common. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, the, it's the kind, I mean, every, in every church, Protestantism yeah. and everywhere, that would be yeah. the kind of text that you'd be reading. So I was actually kind of convinced by that. It's not going to be uncommon 
for that tone or for his method of maybe translating scripture or his way of thinking of it to at least resemble that type of tone. Yeah, that's, I th why, I think, that's why I think his language, the verbiage in the Book of Mormon, that's why I think that's not very problematic at all because that's sacred text for him. Sacred, I, that's the only sacred text he knows. I think that's probably, that, that probably goes some distance. I think the place where the problems come in is you mentioned that while, let's say, 600 B.C., even into the 500 B.C., yeah. that these people could have had complete uh, scriptures of their own before they left for the New World. Uh, the more difficult ones, of course, are when there is quotes taken out of the book of Matthew and Mark. Those are put into the book of Mormon. Let's talk that, about those. Let's okay. talk about those because that's the highlight. That's the apex, the spiritual apex, pinnacle for the book of Mormon. Because what the Book of Mormon, if you don't know anything else about it, you might know, okay, it's supposed to be about a people, people who lived in America anciently. But the other thing that you might know about it, if you know anything at all, it's supposed to have an account of an appearance of Jesus after his death and resurrection. The exact timing isn't clear, but sometime after his 40-day ministry in the Old World, in Jerusalem, he appears in resurrected form to the ancient, these ancient Nephites, Lehites, these, uh, this group of people in the Book of Mormon. Spend some time with them, and you have him teaching the Sermon on the Mount. You have him teaching a number of things that are founded, found exactly. Um, well, not exactly. That's the point, of, the point of your question is they're not exact. There are variations. But the uh, very strikingly similar accounts of some of these uh, key texts that are found in the New Testament. So you have Jesus preaching uh, the, uh, really, it's a, it's a different from the Sermon on the Mount, but it follows roughly the same outline, even if a verse or two or three or several have variations within them. So if Jesus is the one, again, New Testament scholars are going to sort of step in here who, who want to fight about these issues. Did Jesus say this? Did Jesus say that? Is this accurate? Is, you know, the scholars are going to want to step in and say, but Jesus didn't even say those things anyway. And here's why we know Jesus didn't even say that anyway. So for you Mormons to say, well, if he said it in the old world, then it makes sense that when he came to the new world, that he would also say it there. Well, on the assumption, again, that these scriptures uh, represent, are, are accurate in what they have in the narratives for Jesus, in the New Testament, if those texts accurately reflect what Jesus said, I don't think should be too surprising that if Jesus shows up elsewhere in this room tonight, for example, and he restates the Sermon on the Mount in pretty close to the same verbiage, I don't think most of us in this room are going to have too much of a problem with that. And again, none of this is meant to, listen, I want to convince you, but it's just to say that if Jesus shows up and then restates to everybody in this room the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, are any of you going to walk away with having any problem with that at all? I mean, I, I can't imagine why anyone would. And that's sort of the idea behind his appearance, or with Mormons, in, in how they want to defend this notion of his appearance in the New World, and why he would say the same thing. I think clearly the effort to look at what he's saying in the New World, if he said it, is to check the veracity of it, for sure. That's the reason that so many... Christian scholars look at that critically. It's true that if he said the same thing, that would probably make some sense. Uh, their difficulty is that, for the most part, some of those portions seem to be lifted out of the King James, which means that even if he did do that in the first century, the, the language that's being written by these ancient people is really something that's not going to happen until the 16th century. Uh, so that's, that's where a little bit of the problem comes in. I also think there's a couple places where, in those efforts to take passages from the King James, it actually ended up quoting passages that weren't in the earliest texts yep. 
they were, you know, there was a passage from Mark, a passage from Matthew, that now biblical scholars look at and say, those look like scribal insertions yeah. that came in later centuries. So the fact that they show up in the Book of Mormon, that would mean that Joseph Smith, un, you know, not knowing that the King James included scribal insertions that probably shouldn't be there, had actually just lifted it, thrown it in there. That tends to kind of impact a little bit of the, I'm just translating by looking yeah. at this. Um, you know, it seems that that's a little... That's a little problematic. Yeah, let me just let me just make one suggestion, then we can probably move on from this discussion. At at a minimum, we can agree that this is problematic, and I do agree this this issue of translation, um, the quotations certainly is problematic. But I would make for anybody who's just for some weird reason you're interested in looking at this more, um, a gentleman by the name of Blake Osler wrote an expense. Uh, we don't see these very often in Mormonism, but he wrote uh, a paper on what he calls the expansion theory of the Book of Mormon. It's a very extended, elaborate explanation to describe exactly what's going on with Joseph Smith and how he works through some of these texts. So anyway, if you're interested, I'm happy to tell you more about that afterwards. But, um, you know, nothing's going to solve any and all of the problems, but he does about as good a job of any, of any as trying to describe how this text sort of emerged from Joseph Smith's worldview and that it's more of, we, we need to think of it more as a combination of Joseph Smith in relation to an ancient text rather than just an ancient text. Most Mormons just think it's an ancient text, period. And we don't spend very much time thinking about what did the cultural and sociological influences on Joseph Smith have in the emergence of that text. And that's what Blake Osler tries to, to work out, is how it is that this 19th century individual ends up crafting this thing. And so what he wants to do is sort of bring them together, uh, ancient stuff with a modern mind, and uh, works out this, th it's called, again, expansion theory, so. I want to ask you just briefly about Joseph Smith himself. Uh, I think Joseph Fielding Smith, who was a 10th president and prophet of the church, said that Mormonism must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. Yeah. Um, a lot is made when I read Christian books that are written about Mormonism about Joseph Smith's background, his background with seer stones, same one that he used apparently to translate the Book of Mormon. Uh, looking for treasure, using it for occult practice, his interest in astrology. Is that just a smear campaign from the Christian perspective? Some of it is. Some of it is, um, some of it is a little bit like, uh, uh, if any of you have ever come across anti-Christian writings, uh, let's just take, let's take something that's not anti, that's just fun, South Park. Any of you guys ever watch South Park and see them have a satirical treatment of a religious tradition? how silly they make the religious tradition look, and you just laugh at it, especially if you're part of the tradition. You're like, yeah, it's pretty weird, right? <laughs> I, I, I guess I just want to say there's a suspicious, um, skeptical way in which one can explore anything. And with a suspicious and skeptical eye, deeply suspicious, deeply skeptical, yeah, you can see that. I can read texts within my own scripture and say, oh, man, this is clearly problematic from this point of view, looking at it with that suspicious eye. And so looking at Joseph Smith's story, the things that he did and was, or was involved with that were controversial and some things that weren't even, at least that I view, very controversial, when viewed through a certain lens, that the lens is this. The lens is basically there's no way that Joseph Smith could have done what he claimed to have done, starting with his first vision to the Book of Mormon, 
to other visions that he claims to have, to revelations that he claimed to have, to translations of another ancient text, the Book of Abraham. Um, there's no way. That's my presupposition going in. It's not a very good scholarly presupposition, but you know this is a, this is a supposition going in to study Joseph Smith. That's my lens. So what I do is I read all of the texts that I can, historical documents, through the lens of there's no way it happened. Guess what I'm going to come up with? A story that describes why there's no way it could have happened. I'm not saying they have to in be inherently wrong, but I worry about individuals who step in with the absolute presupposition that it must be wrong. They'll prove it. I mean, I could do it. I could do it. There are enough things that I recognize as being problematic in Mormonism. So, yeah, it depends on the lens through which you look. And the lens that most, and how is it that believing Mormons get over this stuff then? So we're focusing a lot on these, these things that are problematic, but how do believing Mormons get over it? Joseph Smith becomes the pattern for everyone else to follow in Mormonism. Joseph asks, so why can't I? Now, I don't know very many people that have ever claimed that they had that same sort of theophany. They didn't have that divine encounter with God and Jesus in person. But I know plenty of people, including myself at times, who turn to God in prayer and ask. And this is what Mormons are constantly asking uh, each other to do. And then in the evangelical side of things, in missionary work, this is the number one thing that missionaries are trying to get people to do. Just read it, and then you talk to God about it. And if in your communication with God, you feel good about it, then maybe you know what you should do. If you don't feel good about it, then you also know what you should do. So uh, that's how the average Mormon deals with this. God tells me this is true. So even if I don't understand, this is what God has led me to believe in this moment of personal revelation. So. I want to move a little bit to talk about Jesus because we probably have some questions there that I want to get into. One of which, if my understanding... And, and this is where you can correct me. In Mormon theology, Jesus is the firstborn of the spirit children of God. Yeah. So that, that's already a little bit different than our view that he is the second yeah. person of God, part of the Trinity. So we start with a little bit of difference there, I think. I also understand from Mormon theology that Christ did not live a sinless life, at least in pre-existence. Yeah, that wouldn't he, be right. That wouldn't okay. be right. To the best of my knowledge, I'm not aware of anything anyone has ever written or said that would suggest that Jesus ever made a mistake in the sense of committing a sin, acting contrary to God's will. One of the fundamental narratives in Mormonism is precisely the opposite, that there has been only one individual who has ever always done God's will, whether it was before we were born or while we've lived here. And of course, he's a glorified, resurrected, exalted being now, so... In, in always in accordance with God's will. So. But he is a, a, a second God. Yeah, that would be the sort of sharp way to put it that most Mormons would want to say, yeah, but, you know, say, wait a minute, we're not, we, we, we're monotheists too. And Mormons want to wrestle with this and try and uh, say, we're monotheists. Um, okay, we're there. Just briefly, Mormon cosmology and then step into Christology because they, 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 they sort of overlap. And, and the reason that this is important is because this is my opinion. Everybody familiar with the term creation ex nihilo? Creation out of nothing. The world and everything in it was created out of nothing. Didn't exist before God brought it into existence. Mormonism rejects this. Uh, it's a fundamental disagreement between Mormonism and main uh, traditional Christianity. But it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial because what comes out of this, 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 this moment, 
creation out of nothing, is a distinction between the creator and the creature. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a sort of bridge. The creatures, the created things, can never be what the creator is or like. There will always be a sort of distinction, hard and fast distinction between that creator and the rest of creation. Mormonism in its cosmology has this view that God has always existed and, and that we, in some individual sense, have always existed. There's, there's several different schools of thought on this. One is that there's this sort of this, this pool, I don't know what to call it, um, this stuff, this eternal stuff that's always been there that God didn't make, and he made individuals out of that stuff. He formed us as individuals out of that collective stuff called intelligence. And we all became individuals, so that intelligence has always been around. Can you describe God, though, since we're talking about this cosmology, it's kind of important because we're talking about Heavenly Father God, is that who we're talking about here? Yes, yes. And we're talking about, is this all related to this planet, or are we talking about... Let's get there. We'll, okay. we'll, we'll get there. You, you have this, this eternal stuff called intelligence on one view, and God makes individuals out of this eternal stuff. So in some sense, we've always existed. The other view, and this is what most Latter-day Saints believe, that we as individuals just have always existed in some form or another, always. In the same way that you think God has always existed, Mormons have some sense that I've always existed in some form. So at a certain point, God, Heavenly Father, organizes or creates or establishes or adopts. It's not clear in Mormon thinking is what I'm driving toward. Organizes a family, children, us as children before we were born, in a pre-earth life. And in that pre-earth life, we all live together in the way that we live on earth here as spirit children of our Heavenly Father. I mention this cosmology because the idea in Mormon theology is that Jesus was the firstborn, the eldest of all of the spirit children of God before we were born. So there's this idea of being an intelligent, an individual something, the spark of life that's always existed, and then moving into this transition to the, the phase of being a family member, a child of God and then born into this world into our physical bodies here and now. The hereafter, of course, then there's that split between that individual, you, spiritual entity, and your body, and then the belief is that the resurrection will take place, and that spiritual self and the physical self will be united forever in a way that Jesus is united with his body forever. Okay, so that's where the idea, Jesus is the firstborn of God's spirit children before we were born. And In that place is where the great grand war occurs, where one very prominent individual, angel if you like, Lucifer, decides to rebel and many choose to follow him. So Satan is a real individual spirit being who originated in the same place that the rest of us originated as spirit children of our Heavenly Father and he rebels and many followed after him. Now, when Jesus comes so, to earth during his earthly ministry, yeah. is he a god at that point, or is he coming? What is his status at yeah. that point? When does this he is a, this is a, a god? This is a great question because you guys, as in Christians, have been wrestling this for about 2,000 years, give or take. 
the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, right? This is a disagreed, problematic issue across the board in Christianity. What part of him's human? What part of him's divine? How does this work out? Is he like us? Isn't he like us? What does the incarnation finally come to? We've been wrestling with it. I'm not sure we have it all, to be frank with you. Mormonism teaches something like this, and then we leave it alone. Jesus had an eternal father. Whatever happened between he and Mary, not too much need to speculate, even if former leaders of the church did. There was speculation about that. But today, contemporary Mormonism, we don't feel too much need to speculate about exactly what happened between God and Mary, but that through the Holy Spirit, Mary, who was a virgin, conceived and bore a child. So Jesus has a mortal mom, an eternal father. He's half human, half divine. So there's something radically distinctive about him through and through. Um, So is he God? Is he human? Well, yes. Uh, How each relates to each other. Um, How it's meaningful that he was sinless, given that he's also half divine. I mean, really, think about that for yourselves. Here's this divine being, and he's sinless. How meaningful is that given what we are? In other words, he's got some sort of an advantage from the get-go, and that he's sinless. Is that really helpful to me and inspiring to me? I don't know. He still is the ideal, but I don't know. So we haven't wrestled with it is all I want to say, that especially anywhere close to what's gone in the past 2,000 years with this question of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. So his human nature, his divine nature, well, he had an eternal father and a mortal mother, and that's as close as we come, which really isn't far at all on getting clear on who he is. Well, since we're on the subject of gods, uh, let's go back to the cosmology for a moment. It seems that what you were describing relates to this earth. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Because Mm -hmm. there is the idea that there are other gods over an infinite number of planets. Are those other gods and those other planets, are they equal to the god of this planet? Is there some notion of a supreme god? Is Mormonism just not concerned with anything other than what's going on with this god? How does that work? There's an, well, I won't pull it out. There's an interesting scripture in the Pearl of Great Price, the early chapters of the Pearl of Great Price. But the Pearl of Great Price begins with the book of Moses. It's eight chapters. It's the early, it, it corresponds with the early chapters of Genesis. I say corresponds because it's a very different narrative. Um, but in that story, Moses has this vision of the creation of the world. Um, as a matter of fact, he has a vision of millions and millions of worlds. And Moses says to him, it's a really fascinating text. Even if, you don't believe, even if you don't believe this stuff, it's just interesting in the way that, say, the pseudepigrapha would be interesting. Moses, he turns to God and says, tell me, how did you make these? And what's, he's asking him, what's the point of it all? It's just absolutely overwhelming. Millions and millions of worlds with, with people like this on all of them. And God said, don't worry about it. You just, I'm only going to tell you about the world on which you live. Only accounting of this world do I give you. And then the creation narrative follows. The reason I bring that up is because you have Moses in this interesting narrative questioning God. Tell me more about all of these other worlds. And God says, no, just know that there's a lot of them. And you only need to worry about the one you're on. That's sort of how Mormonism treats this question of an infinite regress of God's. God has a father, and he has a father, and he has a father. 
And there are other worlds like this one. They're doing the same thing. This is just absolutely mind-boggling. And, and most of the time in Mormon discourse, especially uh, the, uh, a recent prophet who he died last year, his name was Gordon B. Hinckley, he was asked about this, this very idea. Uh, and he said, well, something like we don't know very much about it and sort of left it at that, which leaves guys like me going, come on. We've speculated on this stuff for decades. Why aren't you saying anything? But he sort of left it that we don't know much of it. We don't know much about it. And that's kind of where they leave it. But I need to stress that there are two strands. There isn't one way of viewing this. Um, the most common way of understanding this is that families here are like families eternally. So if you can think families are going all the way back to Adam, well, we, st- we have a certain very clear point where we stop. We stop with Adam and Eve. They're the first parents of the human race, depending on what your scientific perspective is. But uh, religiously, Adam and Eve are the parents of the human race. But if you, if you can sort of conceive of how families work going back at infinitely and forward infinitely, that's sort of how Mormons have conceived of their... Uh, held their conception of eternal families, that going backwards and forwards, uh, they go on forever. And so that God has a father too. That's the most common view, but I will say this much. Um, One view amongst scholars that's slowly making inroads is this. Uh, Mormonism isn't that different from traditional Christianity. God is the head God of all gods, and it starts to look a little more like Eastern Orthodox Christianity than what Mormonism has been viewed as for so long. And that is to say that there are three very, there are three beings who are distinct in very important ways. They're divine. They're fully divine, worship-worthy. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Worship-worthy together, those separate and distinct individuals absolutely one in thought and purpose, in deed, in will, absolute unity. And this is how Mormonism says, yes, three distinct individuals, but completely one in the way that Jesus said in John chapter 17. And he has this prayer. Christianity uses this, I know, but the way that Mormonism uses the same prayer is to say, well, if Jesus is praying for his disciples to be one in us, to be one just as I am in you and you are in me. And not only my disciples, but anyone who believes in my, what they, their message, in their proclamation, that they all may be one in us. Well, you start to ask yourself, how big is this oneness? And what does this oneness come to? Lots of individuals seem to be able to be part of this oneness in some interesting way. Well, Mormonism reads that and says, well, that's how we view the unity of God, the absolute mutual indwelling of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three individuals are distinct, and God is the monarch or king or God of all gods. There is no God beyond God. And this is, again, this is slowly making inroads, this idea that God is the God of all gods and that human beings are here to worship and emulate and become like him but will never be precisely what he is in the sense of being worshipped someday. And is that the sense you were alluding to earlier where Mormonism can hang on to a semblance of monotheism? I mean, you've yeah. clearly got three gods. So let's call that maybe tritheism. Or yeah, whatever you want to yeah. Call it. I, I get frustrated with scholars who want to, no, 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 we're not tritheistic. I say, yeah, we are tritheistic. Let's just be honest about it. We are tritheistic, but 
I, I want to be quick and say there's an absolute, there's a very important sense in which we want to affirm the monotheistic concept in Mormonism, which is these three individuals together form a Godhead. Uh, we, we use the term, that, that's the common term that we use most often. Um, obviously, Trinity and, tr- and traditional Christianity is the common term, but we use the term Godhead. And God, in the sense of the unified three, is the ultimate deity for Mormons. And that's how they talk about monotheism. So going back to that point you made about not being so concerned with other worlds or other planets, yeah. that statement you made about God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit being the only worship-worthy yeah. beings, in that new sense that you're talking about, that also covers, even though we're not supposed to inquire about much about those other worlds, that covers that they would be supreme over whatever would be is going supreme on. over all of those other creations. I mean, it wouldn't be weird for Christians to speculate, did God create any other worlds where there are people like us? I mean, there's no problem with that sort of speculation. But yeah, that's how they would sort of look at it um, in that way. Now again, popular Mormon discourse, yes, this idea of an infinite regress of gods and the idea <clears throat> that human beings can become like their father um, is still very much there. It's just to say there are more than, there are multiple options available within Mormon thought for some of these issues, more than you would realize. It's, if you walk away with nothing else tonight, you know, if you're sort of glossed over now at this point after all this, this talk, um, if you walk away from nothing else, Mormonism is not just one thing to all Mormons. So. Here's what I want to do right now. Since we're kind of, we've got such cool stuff going on, I want to take a five-minute break, if you guys don't mind, kind of stretch, grab some food, hang out for just a moment, shake loose for a moment, and then come back and finish up a little bit more rather than trying to plow through and overloading you. So let's do that right now. Let's take five minutes. Anthony has some cards and some pens and stuff. If you have a question that you want to ask, why don't you just jot it down in this break right now and we can look at them and see if we can get some of those in as well. 